suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Moran, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and even enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today we introduce Arthur, Arthur, What Were You Thinking? Part 1. A story from history. There, there lived a man you probably never heard of who made two hugely significant decisions within a period of months of each other more than a hundred years ago. The outcomes of which were so consequential they produced ramifications that still reverberate around the world even today, in ways that were completely unforeseen, absolutely unknowable in nature. And these mighty decisions made a century ago impact your lives as I speak these words, and still you don't know how they come into play, and you don't know this man. How how can this be in an age where seemingly all knowledge is available to us within just a few keystrokes. So, we begin. In 1917, within a 90-day period, in the midst of World War, World War I, German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmerman saw fit to make two of the most prof profound decisions made by any statesman of any nation during the 20th century. And still, Effectively, no one knows this man's name. And neither of Zimmerman's decisions, this is ironic, resulted in outcomes he anticipated, nor did either decision he made redound to the ultimate benefit of the German state to which he was employed, nor did the outcomes prove to be net positives to the world's welfare either, as it turned out. Yet, both actions Zimmerman initiated altered the course of history and have done so ever since. For the Kaiser for whom he toiled, he soon found himself uprooted, root and branch, by the fallout from Zimmerman's decisions, exiled eventually to the Netherlands, from which he'd never again step foot on German soil for the remainder of his life. And, you know, the Kaiser, he kept a railroad car fully stocked with all his stuff, all his belongings, and he kept it for more than 20 years in Amsterdam, ready to roll on a moment's notice upon receipt of the call from the German people desirous of the Kaiser's return. And, you know, the Kaiser was still waiting for that phone to ring at the time of his death in 1941. From, and I can assure you, from 1933 on, it should have been apparent. It should have been clear that Adolf 
Hitler wasn't going to be dialing that number. No way. So anyway, in 1917, Arthur Zimmerman, the German foreign minister, he was a very busy man. He made plans. He exercised his authority. He was confident in his own ability. He made plans. He took action. For each of us, like it or not, life is the sum, the sum of our decision-making. And, and some decisions that we make are relatively unimportant. If the stakes are small and we err, we survive, we carry on, we, we move on despite these negative outcomes and unintended consequences. And, but some of the decisions that we make are important and we know them to be important. Some decisions that we make are important, but we don't know them to be important. And, and some de decisions that we have to make demand detailed analysis of the best information available at that moment, at the moment a decision need be made. But we lack access to all the information we might want to have to scrutinize prior to exercising our judgment. You know, demanding too much information to analyze prior to making a decision might well expose us to what is known as the handicapper's dilemma. That is, um, research has verified that a handicapper, given four or five variables to assess, to scrutinize, when selecting a horse to bet on, produces better outcomes than when the same handicapper is given 20 to 30 variables to assess before picking the winner. Too much information is just white noise. It's distracting. It, it clouds too much of the picture. It proves counterproductive um, to the attainment of superior performance, which is choosing the winner based on the information that is on hand. And Arthur Zimmerman had access to lots of information as the German foreign minister in 1917. He had lots of facts and figures at his disposal to contemplate, to process, to assess. And from this data, Zimmerman had to make decisions as to how best to promote German interests in the midst of world war. Now, some decisions demand immediate response. You know, there's, there's really not a lot of time to think. We're just compelled to act. You know, we move on impulse, intuition, and experience as, as our only guide. And sometimes we're proven right. Other times, you know, we're proven wrong. And Zimmerman was not in a circumstance that compelled immediate reaction, immediate response. He had time to think. And perhaps this was the problem. You, you, know, you, you might spend a great deal of time assessing all the variables that are available to you, evaluating all the options you might think of taking. But sometimes one's Judgment just proves flawed. We, 
you know, like Zimmerman, will always be subject to, you know, observers later hindsight bias. I mean, that's just the way it is in human affairs. We must act and sometime, sometimes the consequences just swamp you. And this is always going to be the case with Arthur Zimmerman and the Kaiser's Germany in World War I. It will hound Zimmerman and the memory of Zimmerman as long as Zimmerman is studied. You know, Arthur, Arthur, Arthur. You know, what were you thinking? How could you ever possibly think that these decisions that you made were good ideas? Did you really think they were good ideas? What were you thinking, Arthur? Were you thinking, Arthur? And while it is best to make decisions as the product of rational analysis rather than based on nothing more than impulse or or propelled by raw emotional response to stimuli, life demands that decisions be made. And some decisions work out and some just don't. And then there are certain decisions that just, no matter what, they seem so stupid, just dumb. And I'm going to give you a dumb example. Now, this is a, this is a, a dumb decision, but adversely impacted only one life. It was highly deleterious, but again, only to one life, unlike the decisions that Zimmerman was going to make and that we'll discuss. So on a Sunday, February 4th, 1912, to be precise, the French tailor and inventor, Franz Reichelt, decided he was going to test the efficacy of his own newly designed parachute. Essentially, it was an ill-conceived, flawed design. It was devoid of theoretical scientific validation. Effectively, it was the technical equivalent of the ostrich. Yes, technically, an ostrich is a bird, but it's a bird that does not fly. And Reichelt's parachute was a fundamentally unsound version, kind of a, a forerunner of the modern wingsuit except it displaced no air. It was, as, as, they might, as they might say, unfit for flight. Its efficacy, however, it was decided by Reichelt um, himself, was going to be confirmed or denied by his insane decision to launch himself off the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Now, now many, many people that knew Reichel told him he ought to back off his preferred method of test design efficacy, but to no avail. So let us conclude only that Reichelt's parachute design was both fatally flawed in design and then poorly executed. This is a bad combo. He was not prepared for takeoff. <laughs> Authorities had not cleared him for legal takeoff, you know, a la the Tenerife air disaster, which is still the worst air disaster in commercial aviation history. Reichelt elected to take off on his own authority hmm. without proper clearance from French authorities. Take off poor. Flight time, hmm, 
less than scheduled. And 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 Reichelt suffered what today is known in in aeronautical commercial aviation terms as he experienced a hard landing. Reichelt's calculus and physics both proved deficient to the task at hand. And the task at hand? Landing his craft beneath the Eiffel Tower. Now, the mathematics and physics involved in this act of daring are summarized, at least by me, roughly as follows. His leap from a height of 157 feet placed Reichelt well beyond the height at which pure physics establishes the mortality risk to human beings to be 100%. 100% mortality rate. While, while Reichelt would not have been, been in the air long enough to reach terminal velocity, which is defined as 174 feet per second, his glide ratio looked to be, to bystanders, asymptotic to zero. He went down. He hit the ground at a speed approximating 80 feet per second, sufficient to make a hole 5.9 inches deep in the targeted landing area. Death would have been instantaneous with landing, a literal DOA, meaning Reichelt had achieved only two of his three established objectives. Number one, he landed, yes, Number two, he landed in the targeted landing area. Yes, but he landed at an unanticipated high rate of speed such that he validated the scientific finding that a fall from a height far lower than the level from which Reichelt leapt from the Eiffel Tower confirms that the mortality risk is indeed 100%. The Frenchman hadn't thought things through sufficiently. Apparently, in the case of Arthur Zimmerman, he might have outthunk himself. Unlike Reichelt, whom appears, appears to have been just an idiot, Zimmerman was well-regarded, he was very intelligent and thoughtful, but Arthur didn't get things right. Effectively, mirroring for the German state the fatal outcome experienced by Reichelt personally five years before. Now, German Foreign Secretary Arthur Zimmerman made two momentous decisions during the course of the First World War. Idea number one, when the Russian Revolution broke out in 1917, Believe it or not, Lenin wasn't there. In fact, Lenin wasn't even in Russia. Comrade Lenin was idling away his time and exile in Zurich, Switzerland. And guess what? Arthur Zimmerman knew this. And this circumstance gave Arthur Zimmerman an idea. The first of his two big ideas, by the way. Ideas he hoped would help his boss, Kaiser Wilhelm, and Germany win World War I. Now, the German foreign secretary thought it would be <clears throat> a great idea, a great idea to track down Lenin stewing in Zurich. 
Then he would offer Lenin a great deal of money and suggest that Lenin gather his um, nearly three dozen malevolent, violent cronies aching to bash heads in Russia in the, in the Russian Revolution and and that had started without him by upstart, upstarts. You know, that he thought unworthy of revolutionary fame. And by the way, the nerve of those guys to start the revolution without Lenin. And and Zimmerman would offer um, Lenin not only a great deal of money, he would get him and all his buddies on a train through Germany, a secret train with a sealed secret car. And these wolves, of which there were nearly three dozen, would transverse all Germany incognito. Zimmerman's initial objective was to situate Lenin in Russia with enough secret funding to bring about more chaos to the already turbulent, chaotic streets that were Petrograd. And, and Lenin was, was just a sort of violent, um, sociopathological megalomaniac Germany needed to bring the ultraviolence to the Russian nation, then fighting Germany on the Eastern Front, but also a nation at that very moment that hated its czar, that was beset by internal strife, um, with mutinous troops and sailors, and they were facing economic deprivations, food shortages, and the street violence that Lenin's presence might turn into a raging inferno that would take Russia down. Now, Lenin's train um, would take, you know, he and his violent cohorts to the Baltic Sea, where a waiting ferry would carry them to Sweden, where 700 miles north of Stockholm, this violent little mass of Bolsheviks would, would then cross the border into Sweden on their way to Petrograd to cause real trouble for the Russian bear. This, this was the great idea of Arthur Zimmerman. And Zimmerman had no doubt that Lenin, armed with proper financial backing had the right stuff to seize control of the revel of the Russian Revolution. I mean, Zimmerman had the ultimate confidence in the balls that this little Lenin had. And Zimmerman knew Lenin with, with an uncompromising, the power-hungry little bastard who had little regard for human life, ex ex except, of course, for his own, and who'd make and he would make plenty of enemies as he set out to hijack the revolution. Zimmerman knew all this. And and Zimmerman knew also there was a good chance Lenin may well wind up dead. If if so, calculated Zimmerman, you know, sort of from the German perspective, no harm, no foul. It just didn't it it wasn't really Germany's problem. At minimum, Lenin was sure to bring Russia to a boil. And that of that, Zimmerman was totally clear. And that, and, and that was Zimmerman's objective, to cause such turbulence in Russia that 
the czar might see reason to you know, decide. To, he had to pay way more attention to Russia's seething internal affairs, its internal politics, and seek an armistice to end the fighting with Germany. At, that the czar needed to you know, have his focus redirected, put out the fires of a simmering revolt in Russia. And then, free from worry about fighting the Russians on the Eastern Front, Zimmerman's plan was then Germany might then redeploy its fighting forces to Western Europe, you know, where trench war- warfare was, was simply sapping the strength and the will of all the combatants. And the increased troop strength just might allow a German offensive to cross that tipping point at which they would seize the initiative and end the stalemate on the Western Front, thereby winning World War I. And by the way, fighting a two-front war was never a good idea for Germany in the first place. Bismarck never would have engaged in such a practice. Now, if Lenin were, were, were somehow to have fought his way to control of the revolu- Russian Revolution, he'd have to deal with the Tsar, the White Army, and all those that might doubt or might hinder Bolshevik plans for a workers' utopia in the harsh lands of Russia. You know, knowing knowing the history of the Tatars and the Mongol invasions, a Russian people inured to to many hardships we cannot even imagine. Lenin would have had plenty of fish to fry beyond fighting Germany in a war turned very unpopular with the Russian people. And having been provided the resources to get there in the first place, Lenin would definitely want out of the war with Germany, ASAP. That was Zimmerman's primary objective. The Russian bears' guns would be silenced. And that was the goal of Arthur Zimmerman. He got so much right. But then in part two, we're going to talk about how it all went wrong. And then the second decision by which Arthur Zimmerman changed the world for the worse. Thank you very much. Goodbye and good day. Thanks for listening. Inside game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be returned Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see that I've been Call a
in front of me Two eyes that can't make you see It's the mind that paints all these pictures Like the mirage of the deserts I misread all the signals I never knew that I'd been lost I thought goes from way back in my past Never knew how much it costs Just a drop of rain and a thunderstorm Another grain of sand on the beach A blade of grass on a mountain field Another car on a shower street Mistakes, just things that I've done I can tell and I've broken the heart Can she forgive me? Can she forget? Can she keep us from falling apart? I hope that she knows that I meant no harm My demons, they led me astray I trust that she will open her And I hope that you